Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Not even close. Bill Gates' stark warning on America's handling of COVID-19. Sophisticated deception. Wirecard's auditors say they were victims too. Zucked off. Verizon joins the Facebook advertising boycott and saving the best for last. Legends after 30 await the Reds take the title. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Good to be with you as always as we take the pulse of the global economy this hour with Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz. And not forgetting our own personal pulse rates too. The Fitbit CEO James Park will also discuss the latest research on whether his health tracker can help join in the fight against coronavirus. Never more essential as the US reports its largest daily jump in COVID cases. We're now talking 40,000 people infected. And of course, the US isn't alone in seeing cases rising once again, balancing the economic risks of unsafe reopenings, let's be clear, versus delayed reopening is the ongoing challenge we face around the world. Here's a look at the global stock picture. We're mostly lower pre-market, as you can see, in the United States and keenly watching what's going on with the banks today. U.S. regulators eased trading and investment rules for the sector yesterday and the bank's shares popped higher than last night. The Federal Reserve ordered banks to suspend share buybacks and cap dividends, a.k.a. they were told to hold more cash. It's clearly an indication, I think, that the Fed remains very concerned about the economic stresses going forward. Compare and contrast BlackRock saying the European recovery is looking very V-like, at least for now. French consumer confidence numbers beat expectations this morning too. As you can see, that stock market outperforming Asia. The Friday session was mostly positive. China investors were out once again. Australia's Qantas was the big loser, falling more than 9% after they announced job cuts and a capital raise. Just another airline buying time until we return to global travel and some form of normality once again. Until that time, we will take you around the world instead. Let's get to the drivers. The global coronavirus crisis still deepening. Now we're approaching nearly 10 million confirmed cases. In Latin America, Brazil alone has recorded more than 1.2 million infections. Almost wherever you look, the numbers are accelerating. In Russia, well over 600,000 cases, almost half a million. In India, look at the UK too, still not halting the spread of the disease with more than 300,000 infected, but they're all dwarfed by the numbers here in the United States. Thursday, bringing a new daily high of more than 40,500 new cases, with the situation in California, Florida and Texas getting rapidly worse. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is in Dallas, Texas with more. Unfortunately, I don't see an end in sight. Uh, We are going to continue to have this acceleration of cases. Nearly 6,000 people testing positive here in Texas, another single-day record for the state. The situation in in Texas uh, is, is a warning shot. 
The state seeing record hospitalizations, too, with that number steadily increasing each day over the past two weeks. We started opening up in May. I will agree that uh, it was my opinion then we were opening too quickly, too soon. Texas was one of the first states in the country to begin reopening 56 days ago. But now the recent surge forcing Governor Greg Abbott to hit pause on the state's reopening plan. We work on a daily basis and you should anticipate more orders coming out uh, in the coming days. But his earlier reopening order would still allow many businesses already open to continue operating, including malls, restaurants and gyms. Neighboring Louisiana and New Mexico also pausing their reopening, trying to stop the possibility of similar increases like Texas. And other states like North Carolina, Kansas and Arizona pausing too. We expect that our numbers will be worse next week and the week following in terms of cases and hospitalizations. In California, Los Angeles County has more confirmed cases than any other county in the nation. In Florida, where 5,000 more cases have been confirmed, Governor DeSantis still resisting implementing a statewide mandate to wear masks. And in Ohio, the state reporting a staggering number. Nearly 60% of new cases are people ages 20 to 49. They've got to get aggressive if they're going to bring these virus outbreaks under control or they're going to be forced to shut down. At a CNN town hall, Bill Gates saying that the global and domestic picture are bleaker than expected. The U.S. in particular uh, hasn't had the leadership messages or the coordination that you would have expected. But basically, we're still not doing enough now on this pandemic. No, not even close. I mean, just... You know, people died today. Despite President Trump repeatedly insisting that the country needs to reduce testing to keep totals low. If we didn't do testing, we'd have no cases. The CDC believes that for every one person who tested positive with the virus, 10 have gone undiagnosed, which means that an estimated 20 million more Americans have possibly been infected. The virus causes so much asymptomatic infection. We probably recognized about 10% of the outbreak. All this, of course, risks the strength of the economic recovery and why stress tests on banking systems are so important. Well, stress tests on the U.S. banks showed they're in good health. But to keep it that way, the Federal Reserve ordering large banks to suspend share buybacks and cap shareholder dividends. Joining us now with all the details, Claire Sebastian. It was like a pat on the head with a kick in the teeth, I think, the last 24 hours, loosening some of the Volcker rules that kicked in after the financial crisis, but at the same time saying, guys, you need to hold more cash and be prepared for the economic challenges going forward. Yeah, I think you put it perfectly, Julia. Uh, on the one hand, earlier in the day, on Thursday, we got the news that, that some parts of the Volcker rule were being relaxed. Banks uh, would, would be able to more easily trade in derivatives and invest in venture capital funds. That sent the share prices of those bank stocks up. But then, of course, after the market closed, we get the news uh, about these stress tests and the extra sort of protections that the Fed is putting in place to just to make sure that these banks are well enough capitalized given the uncertainty ahead. They said that so far the banks 
are healthy and should be able to withstand even the most adverse scenarios. But they didn't just conduct the normal stress test. They added sort of an overlay sensitivity test that looked at three different scenarios of the pandemic, a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, and a W-shaped recovery. And they said that in the cases of the U and W, some of the banks came pretty close to their minimum capital ratio requirements. And that's why they are putting in place these extra protections. I think not a huge surprise to many, but one thing that was perhaps a surprise is the level of oversight we're now going to see from the Fed. The, the, the banks have to submit uh, their capital plans again later this year, and they will be subject to scrutiny from the, the Fed board once every quarter, Julia. So a lot of oversight. I think that speaks again to the level of uncertainty in the economy. I couldn't agree more. And also the Federal Reserve is saying, look, we just have to be prepared here. They've been sending warnings about the risks here now for weeks and weeks and weeks, particularly to Congress as well, to say step up. You'd be forgiven for thinking if you looked at the stock market that we're likely to see a V-shaped recovery. But when you look at the share prices of some of these banks, in contrast to some of the outperformers like Amazon, you see Mm -hmm. that these bank stocks are pricing in trouble. Yeah, they they are up most of them since since the March lows, but they're not really outperforming the market. They they they're sort of sort of moving around the middle there. I think what we know, Julia, from the earnings of the last quarter is that these banks are having to set aside a lot of money for loan loss provisions. We're about to get earnings again in the second quarter, and that could show the situation worsening. And that is what the Fed is trying to protect. They want the banks to continue to be able to lend to, to, to businesses and individuals and to be, to be able to cushion against these losses. And there was, I should note, some opposition, even from within the Fed board, to, to the Fed allowing dividends to still go ahead while, while obviously capping them at the rate paid out in the second quarter. Lael Brainard, one of the Fed board members, said, I do not support giving the green light for large banks to deplete capital, which raises the risk they will need to tighten credit or rebuild capital during the recovery. She says this policy fails to learn a key lesson of the financial crisis, and I cannot support it. So people are extremely worried, even within the ranks of the Federal Reserve. Yes. Shareholders rank second to borrowers in need, and that must be remembered. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Wirecard's woes are escalating. The EU launching a preliminary investigation into the German digital payments firm involved in a massive accounting scandal. Questions have also been raised about regulators, including Wirecard's auditor, Ian Y. Fred Pleitgen is in Berlin, has been following this story for us. It's got all the makings of a movie plot, quite frankly, Fred. But quite frankly, when an auditor comes out and says, look, we were duped too, I go, hang on a second, what was your job here for a number of years? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's exactly what uh, some German capital investors, Julia, are, are actually saying. There's been a, a lawsuit against EY about their auditing of Wirecard that uh, has been going on uh, since uh, at least Friday. And the German capital investors that are part of that lawsuit are saying, look, they've been talking about this for a very long time, that they believe that there was something wrong at Wirecard and that EY wasn't doing what it was supposed to do to get to the bottom of it. But you're absolutely right. EY, Ernst Young, is saying, look, There was nothing we could do about this. This was all so elaborate that it would have duped anyone is basically what they're saying. I want to read you part of the statement that EY put out about this. They said, and this is a quote, collusive frauds designed to deceive investors and the public often involve extensive efforts to create a false documentary trail that even the most robust and extended audit procedures may not uncover a collusive fraud. So essentially they're saying they believe that they did their job, but as you say, they believe that they were duped 
themselves. Now, of course, um, German authorities uh, are saying that that simply isn't good enough for them. There's a lot of criticism that's coming out from the German uh, banking regulator of Bafin as well, who, of course, has also been quite self-critical also. They're saying that they also probably uh, should have done more in the way of oversight uh, to get to the bottom of what was going on there at Wirecard for such a very long time, apparently, with, of course large assets just simply not being there. Uh, And uh, Germany's finance minister, and we've been talking about this, also has been coming out. He's been quite self-critical over the past couple of days as well. And he said that, look, Germany really needs to take a look at its regulators' process, at at the way regulation is done here. And if mistakes are uncovered, those mistakes need to be corrected very, very quickly. Obviously, the Germans do feel that this was a big embarrassment for this country as a financial marketplace, as a place uh, to do finance business and to do business in general. And of course, the Germans understand that really part of what makes them so successful is the, is the fact that people have trust in regulation here, trust in processes here in this country. So it is certainly something that the Germans are taking very serious as well. And then, of course, on top of that, Wirecard itself not looking good at all for them, as we're also hearing that MasterCard Visa potentially going to sever any sort of ties with uh, uh, Wirecard. And that, of course, for some of these clients for Wirecard, big problem also as well. As you say, absolutely correctly, all this has the makings of a very, very large thriller movie here in Germany. Yeah, not so great for uh, investors and people who've uh, lost money as a result, though. Um, Fred, great to have you with us on that. Thank you. Fred Plankin, The Plot Thickens. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with uh, some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Okay, the German government is hosting a meat industry summit in the wake of several COVID-19 outbreaks in processing plants. The government is pushing to increase meat prices by 45 U.S. cents per kilo to improve animal welfare and conditions for workers. Anna Stewart joins me now. Not just a German problem, of course. We've seen this in terms of ensuring food supply chains, in terms of protecting workers all over the world. Why is it so challenging to operate this business, Anna? What have you been finding? It's a really worrying trend, isn't it? This is specifically meat processing plants, slaughterhouses. There have now been at least four outbreaks in the UK in factories like this one. This is in Wales. This is a poultry factory. And I've been speaking to people in town. I've been speaking just now, actually, to a worker who worked here and did contract the virus earlier on in their outbreak. And no one knows for sure exactly why the virus seems to spread so quickly in these factories. The worker I spoke to said there was plenty of PPE, there was plenty of sanitizing stages. He felt very safe, and yet it happened. So here's a deeper dive into why the virus is really uh, spreading so quickly in plants like this. It's the third meat factory in the small country of Wales to register a coronavirus outbreak in recent weeks. This one, at the Two Sisters Poultry Factory, is the biggest, 200 cases so far. That's dwarfed by an outbreak at the Tuenya's meatpacking plant in Germany, where over 1,500 workers have tested positive for COVID-19, leading to a local lockdown, more than 360,000 forced to quarantine. It's a worrying trend in meat processing plants and slaughterhouses across the world. Despite many adopting COVID-19 safety measures, PPE and social distancing where possible. So temperature is something that that is a feature, particularly in cutting plants. Um, It's it's harder to have a cold temperature in in actual slaughter lines. But one of the features of of slaughter lines is the fact that they're very noisy places. Um, People have to stand close to each other and sometimes shout in order to make themselves heard. All of these things can promote the the risk of spread of infection. 
In the UK, more than two-thirds of sector's workers are from other European countries. In the US and Germany, migrant workers make up around a third of the workforce. Back in the town of Klangefni, home to the closed poultry plant, the streets are practically empty. Many of the workers, their families and their contacts are still self-isolating at home. It's a small town and almost everyone we've spoken to knows somebody that is affected. The biggest concern has been that employees who felt sick early on in the outbreak didn't stay home as they couldn't afford to. These people are all all paid. Uh, They don't have sick pay schemes in place. So when people have uh, a slight temperature or uh, um, uh, something that could be related to COVID-19, whether it's a, a slight cough or a slight temperature, people have been less likely to take time off and isolate. Two sisters say unions like Unite are leveraging this crisis to improve workers' conditions and added that all their staff are now on full pay since the factory is shut. There's a confluence of factors at play. As outbreaks continue to crop up at meat plants across the world, there are concerns about the safety of the workers and their communities. Here in Wales, the lockdown is still very much in place, unlike uh, neighbouring England. And that means that the outbreak here in the factory is less likely to spread through the wider community. But as lockdowns are lifted across areas of Europe, look at Germany, look at that huge outbreak there and the fact that 360,000 people have had to go back into lockdown, back into quarantine. That is the risk and that is why it is so important that they figure out exactly why these slaughterhouses, these meat processing plants are such hotbeds of the virus and to make sure that these workers can be protected going forwards. Julia? Absolutely. It doesn't get more essential than these people when we're talking about food supply. Somehow we have to protect them better. Mm. Anna Stewart, great job. Thank you for that. All right, coming up here on First Move after the break, Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz is on the show to talk people, power and profits. And could your smartwatch know you have COVID-19 even before you do? We'll discuss the latest research. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures on target for a lower open in the final session of the week. This as new numbers confirm that pent-up consumer demand following the lockdowns has helped boost U.S. spending. Personal spending rose more than 8% last month, though admittedly from a low base. And with almost 20 million Americans still collecting jobless benefits and an employment rate stuck at 13%, at least on paper, the health of the consumer remains in question. Nike is seeing a cautious consumer. Shares are lower pre-market after the company posted a surprise loss for the fourth quarter. Sales fell by a greater than expected 38%. Now, despite the challenges, White House economics advisor Larry Kudlow remains upbeat on U.S. growth. He still believes the economy can rebound some 20% in both the third and fourth quarters. Joseph Stiglitz is a Nobel Prize winning economist and professor at Columbia University and also the author of the book titled People, Power and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. Professor Stiglitz, fantastic to have you on the show, sir. Thank you for joining us. Your view on the probability here of a V-shaped recovery, can we rule that out? Uh, yes, it's a fantasy. Uh, you know, what, what they meant when they talked about a V-shaped recovery 
back in March was that you put the economy in a, uh, in a hospital for uh, four weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks. And by beginning of June, at the latest, the end of July, we would pick up where we left off. Uh, no one thinks that that's going to be the case. And the, uh, the best forecast, uh, both from the Federal Reserve and, and from uh, the IMF, is that the U.S. won't be back to where it was uh, at the end of 2019 until uh, 2022. Uh, I think what has been happening in the United States with the upsurge in uh, cases makes even that look rosy. What is your prediction based on what we're seeing? Because we're we know that the bar seems very high for a more sustained announcement over lockdowns, but it seems like we're going to see localized lockdowns, people being told to shelter in place again, particularly given the spikes in cases that we're seeing. Well, the basic point that I've maintained all along is that you are not going to have an economic recovery until the pandemic is under control. And under control in uh, uh, almost the entire uh, country and in many ways uh, throughout the world. Uh, we're very interconnected and as long as the disease is raging in some part of the country, people are going to be anxious. And we have now good data showing it isn't the lockdown that is really uh, causing the economic uh, slowdown, uh, it's fear. Uh, you know, in, in, in the Great uh, uh, Depression, uh, President Roosevelt said, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But in this case, we have two things to fear. Uh, we have the fear of the pandemic, which is real. And we have the fear of the inadequate government responses, economic and uh, health responses to the pandemic. Short term, what can be done to at least address and support the economy because a lot of stimulus, whether it's from the Federal Reserve or whether it's from Congress, has been applied here. How can we make policy steps today that don't take us back to where we were in 2019, but actually facilitate growth going forward in a better and more sustainable way? Well, that's a really good point that, uh, you know, the, the administration talked about picking up where we left off. And where we were was not a good position. Uh, one of the reasons why the disease is such a devastating toll in the United States, much worse than in other countries, is that our health status was the worst of the advanced countries. We uh, have the shortest life expectancy, and the one country whose life expectancy today is lower than it was in 2016. Uh, we had a lot of inequality. Uh, a lot of racial discrimination, and we hadn't moved to, to in a way that we should have towards a knowledge economy and towards a green economy. So there are lots of things that we uh, should have been focused on when we put up, you know, several trillion dollars. Uh, but there was no vision of what kind of an economy uh, that we uh, want to emerge from the pandemic. So what we need to do is make sure the way we allocate the money goes in ways that supports this vision, these values. And that will also entail putting some conditions on those who receive the money. 
that they don't spend the money for big bonuses for their CEOs, but instead pay livable wages. Just one example. Uh, in other countries, uh, when they give money to the airlines, they impose the condition that the carbon footprint of the airline be reduced. I mean, American-style capitalism ultimately needs to change, and rising stock markets is only going to accelerate, I think, and um, see those voices that are calling for this become louder and louder. We're already seeing it with, with social unrest in this country. Joseph, what's the risk and what happens if we don't see these changes and this greater scrutiny and conditions attached to, to money? Well, I think what we've been seeing is exactly uh, what we're likely to get, except it uh, could be much worse, uh, the social unrest. Uh, we have not been able to respond anywhere near as well as other countries uh, to the pandemic. Uh, New Zealand was able actually to almost uh, completely get rid of the, the disease. Um, one of the reasons is uh, a high degree of social cohesion a high degree of trust in the government. Uh, the government is seen as a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. I don't think people see the American government in that way. Uh, sometimes I say, uh, I wrote an article describing it as uh, of the 1%, for the 1%, by the 1%, but it's really more accurately by the corporations and uh, uh, by other special interests. Uh, and so, uh, there needs to be trust uh, in science, expertise uh, that's been denigrated. Uh, and in responding to the crisis, we realized, we realized that we needed government. Uh, markets are not going to take care of it. Markets couldn't even produce the masks and the tests and the protective gear that we needed. Uh, but 40 years, 40 years of denigrating the role of government has right. meant that we right. were ill-prepared. Very quickly, I have just a 30 seconds or so. Does leadership change fix this, Professor Stiglitz? Because you said this has been decades. It, this is not one administration's failure. Yeah, it's necessary. Clearly, it's necessary. And uh, that leadership changed, but with the grassroots movement of the kind that we've been seeing uh, can, I think, actually make a difference. I think there's a clear progressive agenda of a different kind of country with a different reflecting, I think, the values of the vast majority of Americans. The problem is our democracy has not been reflecting these deep values that are held more than two to one, three to one across the country. These values need to uh, shine through and be allowed to uh, shine through. This is at the core of your book as well, which is fantastic. So I recommend our, our viewers read it. Professor Stiglitz, come back and join us soon, please, sir. It's uh, always fantastic to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, the unfriending continues. Verizon joining the boycott against Facebook. We'll discuss with tech investor and early Zuckerberg mentor, Roger McNamee. That's next. News just into CNN. Police in the Scottish city of Glasgow say they're dealing with an incident on West George Street, which is currently closed. They say the situation is contained at this time and that there is no danger to the general public. The Scottish First Minister has asked the public to avoid the area. 
We'll bring you any further information on this as soon as we get it. All right, for now, we'll move on and give you a quick look at what we're seeing as far as U.S. stock markets this morning. They're open and they're moving lower. Bank stocks are under pressure following the Fed moving to suspend their stock buybacks and limit their dividend hikes, as we discussed already on the show. It's all about making sure banks have enough cash during the COVID-related crisis. And that, of course, sparking further uncertainty, too, in the business world. Apple closing stores again in Florida and Texas, where cases are spiking. Macy's and General Motors both announcing substantial job cuts in the last 24 hours, too. And another big market test coming this session when the New York Stock Exchange launches its first major IPO since the March lockdowns. Grocery chain Albertsons making its Wall Street debut as safe a stock as it gets, I think, in these troubled times grocery stores. All right, Facebook, meanwhile, trying to contain the growing ad boycott over alleged misinformation on its platform. Verizon joined the Stop Hate for Profit boycott Thursday, making it one of the largest companies to join the campaign and the first telecom giant to do so. Other major companies include Ben & Jerry's, North Face, Patagonia, Magnolia Pictures and more. Let's talk this through. Joining us now, Roger McNamee, co-founder of Elevation Partners. He was an early mentor to Mark Zuckerberg and an early investor in Facebook too. He's also written a book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Roger, fantastic to have you on the show. Good to see you looking well. You and I have talked in the past. Nothing changes for Facebook until users disappear. They're not doing it. Or until advertisers turn around and say, hey, we have a problem with this too. What do you make of the uh, advertising moves? Drop in the ocean or something more substantial? So, Julia, I think there are two levels you have to look at it. As investors, people are going to look at this and say, will it affect the revenues and the earnings? And the answer is not anytime soon. But I do think there is a profound second effect you should pay attention to. And that is that when advertisers are expressing serious concern about the spread of hate speech, which is what really drives this. Remember, the Stop uh, stop Hate for Profit is, is created by the NAACP, Color of Change, the Anti-Defamation League, and Common Sense Media. So these are civil rights organizations. And they're going to advertisers and saying, listen, you know, what's going on right now in terms of the spread and amplification of white supremacy and other kinds of hate speech is intolerable. And advertisers should not be comfortable placing their ads side by side with that. Obviously, as we all know, Facebook has created the world's greatest advertising platform. So it's hard for marketers to give that up, even for a month, which is what this campaign is about. But what the campaign is doing is forcing a reckoning about the impact of Facebook's business practices. Because there's really no reason you can't have the good of Facebook without all the hate speech. The hate speech is there because it maximizes engagement. And Facebook's algorithms are there. They're tuned to maximize engagement. So things like hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories are always going to get amplified more than regular content. And that's been a big issue, as we've talked about before. Another recognition or a revelation about Facebook and we've been here so many times before election interference concerns over content and yet nothing changes at Facebook I guess I ask you Roger does anything change because they've said look we'll we'll have monitoring moderation does that change anything no this is exactly the point 
for 15 years, Facebook's been able to say, we're really sorry, we promise to do better. And then it goes right back to doing what it was doing before, because people's attention is too short. I think, though, Julia, I mean, as Professor Stiglitz just pointed out, we may be at a moment right now where the culture is changing and where expectations for what corporations should do will change with that. And at this particular moment, I think Facebook has put itself in a very uncomfortable position, even relative to YouTube, which does all the same kinds of harm. Facebook's essentially willingness to be a bad guy relative to election interference. It's saying that, you know, really, it doesn't think that lying at political ads is a problem. That, I think, is just not going to age well. And so if there is a change in administration, Facebook, I think, looks at four different times kinds of regulatory threat. There's now actual serious talk about amending Section 230, which is the safe harbor that protects internet platforms from third-party content. There's very serious discussion about new levels of privacy. There are antitrust things going on at states as well as at the federal government level and internationally. And then lastly, I think the real issues in securities law because of the way that Google and Facebook in particular have managed their uh, advertising networks. That's mm. four different kinds of regulation, none of which are factored into the stock price today. And you know, you wouldn't say that the outcome is known for any of them, but those things are going to create doubt going forward. And I think for investors, you just have to pay attention because the numbers are still really good. But this yeah. company has, they have a business practice that is going to be, I think, very controversial, essentially, until something is done about it. It looks Teflon. Do politicians need to um, put their money where their mouth is? I mean, I look at the spending that President Trump, that Joe Biden is uh, pumping into Facebook at a time when we're worried about election interference, when we're yeah. concerned about content. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. The irony here nobody's is going insane. First. Yeah. It, you know, Julia, nobody is going to go first. Facebook has the greatest advertising platform on earth. That is why the stock is where it is today. But I liken it to the chemicals industry in the 1950s. The chemicals industry in the 50s was effectively the internet. It was a fast growing, incredibly profitable industry because they poured waste products wherever they want. They put toxic fumes into the atmosphere, they would pour mercury into fresh water, and there was never any cost to that. And eventually society said, you know what, you guys are harming public health, you're harming the environment, we're going to make you pay a cost to clean up, but we're also gonna put things in place to keep you from doing it. Now I think that is what we're gonna do with all big tech companies. We're gonna do this related to things like facial recognition, artificial intelligence before they get too broadly deployed. And then we're going to go back and look at the big things like YouTube, like Facebook, like Instagram, like Twitter, and ask what are the things that companies like that should be doing to be good citizens as opposed to just super profitable. It's coming, but it could be a long time coming. Roger, very quickly, I oh, want to investor. Be. Yeah, I, I just think it's going to take too long, quite frankly. Very quickly, your tech investor mind would you be investing at this moment, given health challenges, yeah. economic challenges? Julia, yeah. Keep in mind, I'm 64 years old. So as a consequence, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I don't have forever to earn it back. I think what's going on in the United States right now is terrifying. The notion that the EU, that Canada, Mexico and our trading partners in Asia 
we'll treat the United States like a plague ship. That is just terrible for our economy. It's terrible for our outlook. It's terrible for everything. And the notion that we have no response to this rise in cases again, and even if it turns out there are a lot fewer fatalities because it's mo- you know, there's a lot more young people in the mix, this is, this is just terrible for the economy. And it makes me incredibly nervous. And for myself, again, I'm not managing other people's money today, but for myself, I'm very conservatively postured because I don't understand how we can have a great market forever right i mean obviously i see why it's been good now the fed has pumped a ton of liquidity into the system which has kept everything going really really well but eventually the economy matters earnings are going to matter and i just don't see us having any kind of predictable path out of this mess uh, at least until january yeah i want to argue with you and i can't roger always great to chat to you and to get your wisdom julia it's the best you're the best thank you so much for having me on (laughs) thank you sir roger mcnamee co-founder of elevation partner and author of zucked waking up to the facebook catastrophe all right now some very special pictures i want to take you into orbit around the earth you are looking at live action from the international space station and a spacewalk underway right now NASA astronauts Robert Benkin and Chris Cassidy are replacing lithium batteries that provide power to the International Space Station, the third U.S. crew member on board right now. It's Colonel Doug Hurley, also known as Astro Doug. And if you look very closely, you'll see he's wearing a Fitbit in this picture. Yes, I see it. James Park, the CEO of Fitbit, is next. And we'll be talking all things research into COVID and maybe a bit of space too. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. We're following breaking news from Glasgow, Scotland. Police say they have shot a male suspect and that an officer was injured during the incident. They say the situation in West George Street is now contained and there is no danger to the general public. Video posted on social media shows several people leaving a building with their arms raised as armed police wait for them to exit before going in. We'll bring you further updates the moment we get them. But for now, the police saying the situation there is contained. All right, let's move on. So whether it's up in space or down here on Earth, there's close to 30 million active Fitbit users. If you didn't know, these are health tracking wearables. What's interesting is that they generate one of the world's largest databases of activity, exercise and sleep. And now research is underway to see if they can give an early warning of infections like COVID-19. With the results of that study, James Park, CEO and co-founder of Fitbit, joins us now. James, fantastic to have you on the show. What can you tell us about the research? Yeah, thanks, Julia. Uh, so it's it's kind of astonishing. Um, you know, I, I co-founded Fitbit 13 years ago, and it's amazing to see, you know, how much more useful uh, devices like Fitbits and smartwatches and fitness trackers continue to be. And as you pointed out, just very recently. Um, we've been doing a lot of interesting research, and we do believe that wearable data can actually be used to help detect COVID-19 before symptoms start. And this is building on research that we have been doing with Stanford University and Scripps Research in the United States. And we launched a COVID-19 study actually around this topic that right now has almost 100,000 participants who are contributing data to this effort. So it's really a global effort. And already we're seeing that the data that we're collecting off of our devices 
um, using metrics like your breathing rate and the timing between your heartbeats can start to change one to two days before COVID-19 symptoms are actually reported by users. Um, I think that's incredible and it's important not only due to the fact that there's the possibility that you know, these devices can detect COVID-19 uh, one to two days before symptoms start, but because existing tests like nasal swab tests uh, are not great at detecting COVID-19 in the first few days of symptoms because of the viral load and just because it's too early in the stage where your body starts to respond. And we all know that temperature checks aren't foolproof either. We've seen that uh, only 50 to 85% of people who yes. uh, are eventually yes. diagnosed with COVID-19 actually exhibit a fever. So, you know, what's exciting again is that wearable data can, we think, can be a great addition to a comprehensive testing solution Potentially. to COVID-19. I have to say, James, every medical expert I speak to is very cautious and concerned at this stage that we point out that this is research. It doesn't have sort of clinical evidence or proof at this stage that it actually works. This is the very early stages here. I think we have to make that clear, too. Do you agree with some of their caution? Because we don't want to give people false hope. No, absolutely. I think, you know, the severity and seriousness of the pandemic lends itself to you know, being pretty cautious in the solutions that are proposed. I mean, we've already seen that with kind of the varying, uh, you know, suggestions about masks in the early days that they weren't effective. And now we know that, you know, they can be a great tool in, in managing the crisis. So I do think we need to be cautious. But, um, you know, I think it's very promising in terms of the early data that we're seeing. And, you know, it's great that we have some excellent research partners in Stanford and Scripps to help us in the effort. We spoke to Aura's CEO this week, The Ring, that also tracks similar changes. Do you see them as potential competition going forward and smaller, perhaps more easy to use than wearing an additional watch? Could that be fierce competition? Yeah, I mean, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, this is a global health crisis. And I think it's great that there's a lot of companies participating in a lot of different ways to help um, you know, everyone in the world start to address this disease, whether it's just uh, people in the community, uh, employers, institutions, national governments. And I don't think there's a one size fits all to addressing the issue. Um, so you know, I think it's great that there's a lot of different companies and solutions that are out there. It's phenomenal. We can't wait to uh, hear more about this and come back and talk to us soon, please, because the wearables is a fascinating space and I know you've got a lot going on. James Park, CEO and founder of Fitbit. Great to have you on the show, sir. All right, coming up, the 30-year wait is finally over. We'll take you to Liverpool, England, where football fans celebrate their first Premier League title. Yay, that's next. Welcome back to First Move. Big celebrations underway in Liverpool, England, after the city's football club clinched their first league title since 1990. Wow! Fans flooding the streets outside Anfield after their team ended the 30-year drought. Alex Thomas is live in Liverpool for us. Alex's outside broadcast go, it doesn't get better than this. What was last night like? It was pretty hectic, Julia. It's fair to say that uh, people of Liverpool know, to how, know how to have a good time on a night out anyway. Add into the mix this end of an agonising 30-year wait, and it really was 
quite a party. We can show you some more social media video filmed by some of the Liverpool players who were still celebrating this morning, it seemed, judging from what uh, Andrew Robertson, the fullback, said about coming down to breakfast and finding the likes of uh, Virgil van Dijk, their star central defender, dancing and partying. Also video of Jurgen Klopp, the instrumental coach of this successful Liverpool team, also dancing. I think we can forgive them having hangovers and enjoying the party because it's been such a long wait. Liverpool now, the English, European and world club champions. What a turnaround for a club that's really, despite a couple of Champions League victories in the last 30 years, had not anywhere near as much success as they had done in the previous 30 years from 1990 going backwards. All morning we've seen the clear-up operation here outside Anfield, bottles of beer, cans being cleared away, but even those having to do the clearing away, doing it in cheerful spirit, knowing what the cause was, even though people were probably not social distancing at all last night, it's fair to say, when we came down. As we left after midnight, there were still people arriving at nearby Stanley Park just to join in. Let's hear from the manager, Jurgen Klopp. He was pretty emotional after the win by Chelsea over Manchester City on Thursday night, which handed Liverpool the title, and he said it was all about the fans. It's for you out there. It's for you. It's incredible. I hope you stay at home or go in front of your house if you want, but not do no more and um, celebrate it. It's it's all here and it's all here. We, we do it together in this moment and um, it's a joy to do it for you, I can tell you. What a win! Alex, amazing to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Such a great moment, I think, for Liverpool fans and for the players too. No excitement, clearly, on my part here. Great to have you there. And for the fans, please be safe this weekend with your celebrations. We can uh, celebrate next year when we uh, bring it home again. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe this weekend and we'll see you Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.